This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars, premium race-back clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, the first of 2022, we've actually got a special guest. We've got Matt Oxley on to talk about his new book of Valentino Rossi, All His Races. So as usual on the pod, we've got Adam, Neil, David, and like I said, Matt as a special guest. And Neil, obviously you've been globetrotting the last couple of weeks, uh, Northern Ireland, Spain, Scotland. You've just about managed to avoid the dreaded plague as well. Exactly, Steve. Yeah, I went back to Plague Island for about three weeks. Had more close contacts than hot dinners, I think, in that time. And somehow managed to stay COVID-free. So, yeah, counting, uh, counting my blessings being back here in one piece. I don't believe uh, Mr. Oxley was quite so fortunate over Christmas. We all went down with it, with the plague, all four of us. Me, my wife and the two kids. And But, you know, Omicron, it was, you know, because I'm super fit and healthy and a sort of, you know, <laughs> athlete high-performing athlete it didn't affect me too much <laughs> i was going to say matt it was basically just the fact that i managed to catch you whenever you were clearly at the height of uh, your covid fever that uh, you agreed to come onto the pod in the first place yeah yeah i was tripping man i was yeah i just basically drank my way through the whole thing really that was the only way to numb the pain <laughs> David, uh, Neil's after mentioning there all the lateral flows he would have done. It must have just brought you back to your college days, just putting things up your nose. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, uh, I couldn't afford the stuff that I put on my nose, so mostly it was uh, little pieces of, uh, of blotting paper. But apart from that, um, uh, it was fine. Um, so far, I've managed to avoid the, uh, uh, the, the dreaded plague by the simple uh, method of not communicating you know not communicating with people not actually liking people or wanting to be around them it's uh it's it's extremely effective at keeping away all sorts of diseases yeah i think you're probably the only person in the world that's been really happy with the last couple <laughs> exactly. of years Dave. you've managed to keep your contacts down managed to avoid a lot of travel and what about you obviously supercross back in action at the weekend so you pretty much straight back to work at the start of the year um yeah obviously dakar as well steve trying to drum up the enthusiasm for motorcycle racing really after the the sort of the lunacy of the end of the last season um we were kind of uh isolated in terms of avoiding you know coronavirus here in spain um an 11th hour trip back to the uk was was called off uh and yeah well it meant three stints with the in-laws so i, I mean i was suffering my own kind of delirium then after that but um <laughs> You know, it was. Uh, they don't listen to this, do they, Ad? Uh, thankfully, no, they don't speak such great English. So, um, but my wife does, so I could be in trouble. Uh, I have to I have to be a bit careful. But no, it's good to have uh, you know the new year starting again. Of course, everything's kicking off, and it's only a couple of weeks till uh, Sepang, um, and it all starts again. Well, I tell you what, you mentioned Dakar. There, obviously, enough. We have to give a bit of a mention for Dakar, obviously, with Daniel Petrucci doing such a good job on it. And Matt, you actually. You were sitting down for an interview with Danilo about going to do the Dakar as well, just in the end of the season. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, the thing, I mean, obviously, he's a dirt rider. So, you know, you thought, oh, he's, he'll, he'll be all right at that. But yeah, I mean, he's been just astonishing, really. I mean, I mean, absolutely astonishing. Because obviously, it isn't just riding. It's, it's you know, the whole navigation thing, which isn't easy, especially when you're in, you know, the desert desert. You know, when everything looks the same, for, for sort of as far as the eye can see in either direction, I think he's done amazingly well. But I mean, the the, the thing to remember about him, and I'm in no way 
taking away any of his achievement is that he is a dirt rider at heart. You know, he was motocrossing from the age of whatever until he was 16. You know, he didn't actually start road racing to 16. So so he is, he is one, you know, he is 100% a dirt rider, which is why he's kind of always ridden quite the road racing bikes quite loose. You know what I mean? He's kind of, you come from that background. Um, but yeah, no, he's been phenomenal and it's just great to see because he's... Um, you know, just a top man, absolutely. I think you you said it well there, Matt. Because if you saw, I think there was a post by Sam Sunderland, um, who's currently leading the rally. I mean, by the time this podcast is out, God knows what have, what have happened to him um, on the gas gas. But he made this Instagram post where he showed a copy of his road book. I mean, it's basically just a bunch of crowded symbols, hieroglyphics, and um, through a Red Bull event two two years ago, three years ago now, um, just out here in Spain, I was able to do like a bit of a road book course with him and go riding, um, you know, through some some parts of the countryside and trying to actually ride quite quickly while watching where you're going. And my road book was basic. It was ABC. And looking at that image he posted on Instagram, we think, how the can they actually do that while tapping out these 450s at sort of, you know, 120K? So it's... um. You know, it is impressive. I think, you know, Danilo's um, achievements have to be qualified a little bit by the the, the sad demise of his um, aspirations for finishing up the standings. I mean, he was, he's all, to all intents and purposes, out of the rally, out of the competition. But, you know, it does give him the ideal opportunity then to get some experience and just, you know, not have to worry about thinking, oh, am, am I fifth, am I sixth, am I first or 28th, you know, this particular day. So, um, you know, I do wonder if some of the competitors, uh, people like Adrian Van Beveren, who's a, a fantastic motocrosser as well, really good sand riders, won a lot of beach races, you know, they kind of look at some of the the attention that Danilo has created for, for the rally, which has been great, but think, well, you know, I've been busting my ass for five years trying to win this thing. So it's, uh, but no, it's good. It's good to see, isn't it? Yeah, I think uh, it shows certainly the level at which all of these riders are. But I mean, like Matt, you said that um, Danilo's a bit of a dirt rider. Pretty much all of them are dirt riders, really. I mean, every time uh, Adam turns up to a MotoGP race when Andrea Dovizioso's there, Dovizioso, who doesn't like speaking to journalists, basically like corners him and is asking him everything there is to know about uh, about MXGP. Um, a lot of them, I think Bradley Smith was the same, you know, grew up uh, racing motocross, but at some point had to make a choice and decided to go and ride ride sort of on the on the road or well on on tracks and uh, so yeah it's not really surprising it's just a kids generally start off riding riding motocross um and then transition to uh, transition onto tracks but um yeah i mean what i've been impressed most is yeah as you say the navigation skills it's just you know stunning you need so much intelligence to be able to ride these uh, uh, that kind of a that kind of a course and i think that's where he's excelled yeah because i think for me one of the most exciting things with it is it's a bit like jd beach over in the u.s being able to win races in aft and flat tracks and then going out to race moto america win super sport races be competitive on a super bike it's nice to see a bit of a throwback to riders being able to do these different championships. You look at Peter Hickman, he's managed to resurrect his career, basically make himself into a professional rider just by being able to do the TT. Petrucci's obviously a rider, and Neil, you know this from when you first came into the paddock, and he just transformed himself from the rider that was on a, a stock thousand bike in the superbike paddock to then being on a CRT bike to then turn himself into a Grand Prix winner. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just another chapter in Petrucci's amazing story. Um, I think all of us would have the, the similar opinion that he stood out just because he didn't have that uh, 
that normal path through the the Grand Prix categories. Um, and you know, he wasn't being healed as the the next Mark Marquez when he was sixteen years old. Um, he, I think, basically had to convince himself as much as as anything really in those early years in the CRT class that he he belonged there. He would say quite often that uh, he was riding around at the back of the field thinking, "What am I doing here? This isn't my sort of this isn't my field." And to come from that to you know building himself up to. Uh, two-time MotoGP race winner, factory Ducati rider, you know, was uh, in 2019 was third in the championship or second in the championship uh, throughout the first part of that season. You know, it was a, a pretty remarkable story. And ultimately, he wasn't maybe good enough to go on and win a MotoGP championship, but still, what he what he has achieved, I think, until now in his career. And there's still obviously going to be some further chapters added, maybe with uh, some success in the Dakar in years to come, perhaps. Um, you know, it's, it's just another part of this remarkable kind of story that he's had yeah i think also there's we, we see it in car racing where um drivers who've been doing formula one for ages suddenly realize that what they want to do is is kind of do the classics you know so so they've obviously been a formula one driver for, so they suddenly realize they want to do the indy 500 they want to do the le mans 24 hour you know they want to do those real kind of adventurous races that have been you know um that are such a huge part of motorsport history. And I think somebody like Petrucci, you know, doing something like, you know, he's run a MotoGP, he's won a Dakar stage, he hasn't won a Dakar yet, but, you know, you know, and then he could go off and do a Le Mans 24 hour or something and win the Le Mans 24 hour. So you're just kind of, you know, you're just really sucking as much out of the sport as you can, you know, rather than just whizzing round and round and round in circles under vicious pressure in MotoGP or Formula One, you're actually going out and doing something a little bit more adventurous, a little bit more different, a little, you know, sort of actually just um, sort of spreading yourself around a bit, which I think is great. It, it's interesting as well, Matt, because obviously in the Superbike paddock, we only have 13 rounds a year, a much shorter calendar than what you have in the GP paddock. And all of the riders look forward to doing Suzuka. They all want to go to something completely different. They want to go to a race where they're up against Grand Prix riders. They want to be able to prove themselves on a more level playing field. Because whenever any of the superbike riders jump into a GP, it's usually, here's the here's the bike two days earlier. Get yourself fitted onto it. Make sure you're all right. And then you know, you're in at the deep end. Whereas for Suzuka, they feel that when you're up against a Grand Prix rider, you can actually show the full level of your championship and your talents as well. So it's always interesting whenever everyone gets that chance. But obviously enough, Matt, we, we did bring you onto the pod to talk about your new book, Valentino Rossi, All His Races. And this is your second book you've written about Rossi as well. But this was a, this was a bit of a task. There's There's been quite a few races and you even went all the way back to his European championship days. Yeah, I think so. I think I kind of, I've, Forgotten. I think it's 445 races in all. So I think that's 400 and something uh, Grand Prix, two Suzuka eight hours, and then 11 rounds of the 1995 European Championship. So I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's been a bit of a it was a big job, <laughs> and I I, I I I was kind of wondering when I would get paid. So I kind of um, looked back at the, my contract which I signed. I thought, well, I wonder when I signed that. In November 2015, I signed the contract to write that book. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of been sort of five, six years. Obviously, the kind of panic growing slightly as 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 it if we got closer to the kind of deadline. Never really knowing when he was um, going to going to retire. But I was so, you know, I don't really get paid until until the book comes out. So <laughs> I was like, "You bastard, retire! Come on!" <laughs> you know? yeah. so, I so I remember when he when there was sort of, you know we're all 
all last season, it's like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Is he going to stay? Is he going to go? You know, and I was like, oh, for God's sake, just retire. Go on. <laughs> but so, so, so when he did, I was like, yes. And, you know, A, a I can finish the bloody book after five, six years, and B, I can get, get, get some money in the bank account, you know. That's kind of the funny, funny things that were the, basically these are the things that, um, that drive us, aren't they? Getting your work finished and getting the money done. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, this industry is notorious for paying, uh, taking a very long time to pay, but I don't think I've ever had to wait six years to get uh, to get paid for something. Um, what was the most difficult part to actually research? Because you were talking about the the, the European races. Uh, you know, his Grand Prix career is, is quite well documented also because he was really successful right from the start. Uh, but his, his European championship races, I mean, how much coverage was there of those races in that time? Obviously, uh, very, very, very little um i mean it, it would have been probably 2016 right i went to before the italian grand prix i went to the mo offices of motor sprint the italian weekly and and went through um you know obviously when you're doing these sort of things you have to be a bit sort of surreptitious and sort of not really tell people what you're up to you know you don't march in there and say i'm writing a book about rossi can i have a look through your files you know you just say oh i'm sort of thinking about writing a story about his european championship yeah you know and so I went through all of um, the motor sprints for that year, just when he was starting to get coverage, you know, and, th and then got on with the FIM, who basically had nothing, just a championship results, just points, graph, the chart, that's all they had. So that was, um, but then I interviewed people like Lu Lucio Cecanello, who was obviously his main rival, Rossi's main rival in the European Championship. So he remembered a lot of it. And then I interviewed a couple of other riders that were in the championship that year. So that was probably, from a point of view of actually finding out what had happened, that was actually the most difficult part. I mean, everything else is is pretty well documented. And, and you know, I've written Grand Prix reports on pretty much every race, you know, on the days that he r raced them. So, you know, a lot of it was going back through old reports. and and um, But that's kind of quite tricky because you, what was important then isn't important now and what wasn't important then is important now you, you know what I mean you, you're writing it from a different perspective you're not sort of uh so you you have to be careful not to get sort of bogged down in 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 you, you've got to really sort of dilute everything and 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 really get everything to the point where you're telling a story that it's not just a one race report after another and then they went to Aston and then they went to Saxon Ring. So you, you you have to keep the thing dancing along, you know what I mean? How did you pace yourself writing it, Matt? Were you kind of writing everything once the season had finished? Were you going every week and doing a little bit after each GP? I mean, uh, how did you kind of pace yourself? Were you leaving it all to the very last minute or had you sort of paced yourself quite well? I'm quite good at, at sort of getting stuck in. If I've got some work to do, I'll, I'll get on with it. I'd rather do the work and go down the pub afterwards and go down the pub and, and, and sit there fretting about doing getting the work done. You know what I mean? Um, so so I started it in 2016. And obviously, you know, first season, 1995, 1996, 1997, 1998, 1989, 1999. And then the, and the, and the kind of, the, the, the pace of the work kind of got higher, faster and faster as um, uh, as we got closer and closer to the, knowing that he's going to retire. So, uh, yeah, I, I do 
most of the stuff in the winters generally and then and then the last year or so yeah i was really having to you know coming back from every grand prix and but then it's not only the writing it's the subbing the bloody thing afterwards and you know it gets designed and then you've got to correct things and change things and change the design around and so it's a yeah people unless you've written a book you just have no bloody idea what a nightmare it is you know um and by the end by the time you get to the end of it you're so bored of it you know when it arrives when you see the book and you're like Oh, great. But you're so bored, sick of the sight of the thing, really. You've seen every page a hundred times. You've read every word 50 times. You know, you just want, you just, anyway, it's, but it's out now. And, and now I'm waiting for the check. So that's the important thing. <laughs> I mean, I don't think any of us could really, well, nobody could have predicted the kind of career Rossi had. And I just wanted to ask each of us on the podcast time with you, Matt, what was your kind of impressions um, of this motorcycle racer in the formative years? Uh, do you, you know, did you get an inkling that, you know, this could be somebody that you would be writing a book around or two books, um, you know, especially when it came to doing the first one? Uh, you know, what was your, I don't know, your kind of... So he turned up in 1996 and straight away was pretty fast. And fairly quickly, we kind of realized that, because he, he used to come up to the media center on Sunday evenings and spend an hour just chatting and laughing and joking with Italian journalists and us or whatever, you know, which was, you know, what other rider does that? I mean, who, who's ever known a rider that comes up and spends half an hour, an hour in the media centre on a sudden having a laugh with a journalist? I mean, it's just completely unique. Um, so you go like, wow, this guy's a bit different. And then, and then, and then he's getting faster and faster. And then you turn up at Imola. I think it was, was it Imola 96? I think it must have been. And, and there was just, the, the Rossi mania had started and the, and, and the banks across from the start finish were full of all these people wearing stuff. And it was like, wow, you know, this is, this is really, this is something different. But obviously you never know. Lots of people can ride 125s, you know, and then they get on a 250 and they're not so good. And lots of people can ride 250s and they got on a 500 and, you know, it doesn't work. But, but he was, I think, by the time he was got onto two fifties, it was pretty obvious, and he was just straight away bang. I think he broke the lap record at Hareth in his first test on the thing, you know. And and you were like, well, you know, this guy, there was no doubt that he was by then he was very special. I mean, because he was a two year man, wasn't he? he? Took one year to learn the class and then win it in the second. And for me, I think I really started to notice him, you know, being the official Aprilia rider in the two fifties. Um, you know, because I think he was part of that gaggle of the the Italian Spanish riders that were quite prevalent through the junior classes in, in you know the mid nineties, late nineties. But it was a time when you know I think he he made the step out the two fifties, got on that very kind of distinctive uh, NSR five hundred. Um, you know, and I, I think you know that time in the five hundreds, there was a bit of a dearth of Italian and, and Spanish talent. There wasn't a great deal of them. I mean, let's not forget. I mean, Italian Grand Prix winners of that period, you had what. Pierre Francesco Keeley taking a couple of freaky wins. Um, Luca Cadaloro was there or thereabouts. Um, you know, Italy didn't really have a great champion or like uh, icon in that in that series, did they? So he came along, like I guess many great sporting stories, at exactly the right time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and he ca he came in at the end of the kind of Australian um, American domination, you know, which started obviously with Roberts in seventy eight, and from nineteen seventy eight till till. 1999 till 2000 how many european world champions were that uncini lucanelli and crevier so that's three years they all won one championship each and that's in 78 9, 
88, in 23 years, I think there's something like that. It's like 20 out of 23 world championships were won by Australians or Americans. You know, I mean, just the, the Europeans would, until the Big Bang engine came in and tyres developed, you know, and people could ride them in line with the wheels in line instead of sideways. That was when the Europeans came back. So, yeah, he, Rossi has that kind of almost sort of supernatural way of just things turn you know working in his favor he's just he's had a lot of that not always but he's had a lot of that through his career yeah because i think for for me like i remember when we first got sky in the house that would have been in 99 and the first race that we had it for was actually imola that was the one when he had the tricolore on the 250 so you instantly saw a pretty cool looking bike and then we're drawn towards him but what i found really interesting was when i was doing some of the classic races with Nick Harris for Dorna a couple of years ago, we did a big Rossi series. We did all the ones like his first win, you know, 250 wins, different things like this, lots of different races. But what I thought was the most interesting one was Austria in 96. So he was a rookie, brand new track for everyone. The place absolutely flooded for practice. And as the weekend progressed, you could actually see from the footage, he was trying different things to everyone else on the grid. He was taking different lines everywhere compared to everyone else. And when you look at that field like how impressive it was you know you had still an Aspar race and you had all those Japanese riders that were just at on, at the end of that Japanese dominance of the lightweight class and you had this 16 year old kid that was just taking a different approach to everywhere and it just looked obviously with the benefit of hindsight looking at it I don't know this would be in 2018 we did it you're looking back and you're keeping an eye on Rossi anyway but you see that he was doing things no one else was doing and it was only his what eighth ninth grand prix he went out got his first podium then that weekend and you know like you said matt like at the time the big story that weekend would have been ivan goy winning a race we never really saw ivan again after that whereas with rossi that became the big thing yeah when, when um obviously his first deal was signed at, i think at the end of 94 with carlo pernat from aprilia um and pernat said that when he went to watch rossi the first time he 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 Rossi's dad was saying, come and watch my son, he's really fast. And I think it was <clears throat> possibly Virginia Ferrari, I think, or, 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 or Alda Drudy, who finally convinced Pernat to go and watch this young kid who had just started riding 125 GP bikes in the Italian Championship. And um, he sort of said when he first watched him, he didn't know whether he was an idiot or a genius because he was just taking all these weird lines, running off the track. And he was like, wow, there's something different about this guy, but I'm not actually sure you know, whether he is a genius or an idiot, you know, he really wasn't sure because he was so unusual doing everything so different. You're like, well, yeah, you're doing it different, but does that mean that's the good way to do things or are you just being, being, you know, and, and after a while he did decide that he was a genius, you know, right, right then straight away and went, and went back to, um, Ivan Beggio and, um, and said, I want to sign this guy on a three-year contract, you know, 15,000 euros first year, 30,000 euros the second year, 60,000 the third year, something like that. And, and Beggio went, you're mad. Who is this kid, you know? But so, so Pernat, you know, he's, he ha he's had a lot of, you know, he, he's, he's managed to convince people all the way through his career, you know. And um, I've got some other stories, interesting stories about Rossi in his early days with, with Pernat. I'll tell you later. <laughs> oh that's a good tease that's a good tease and with that tease we're going to cut to an ad break so when we come back we'll, we'll probably hear one or two of those stories from Matt
Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. So, David, we're still waiting for your first impressions of Rossi when you were watching it back home. Um, well, I mean, I remember uh, I remember watching World Superbikes at the time because, uh, uh, you know, 500s were incredibly tedious because it was Mick Doohan. And Mick Doohan seemed to exude an absolute lack of joy in everything he did. And it was just, it was, he was an incredible, incredible racer, but it was just no fun to watch Grand Prix. Um, also because it was, um, he didn't just take joy in beating the opposition, he took joy in crushing the opposition. And... Um, Rossi was the antithesis of that. Um, and I remember, I suppose, like in one, two, fives, I probably started taking notice of him in maybe 97 uh, when he started winning a lot and started just being fun. I mean, obviously, there was the uh, the Claudia Schiffer thing with the uh, riding around with a blow up doll on the back of your bike. That gets your attention. Um, and then moving up to 250s. And at the time, I was working with someone who was a big Max Biaggi fan. And so sort of once that sort of um, that rivalry, then obviously I was going to take the, the, uh, the, the side of the Have you ever given this Max Biaggi fan a slap? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, no, no. I, I just, what are you just doing sort of, you know, with your life? Going every Monday and, and point out they'd just been beaten, uh, they'd just been beaten again. So it was, um, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, yeah, it, it was, it was just the fact that he seemed to bring like joy to racing. It was like it was fun to watch him, and that was what really sort of turned me on. Because you know, like at the time, World Superbikes was fantastic. You had Fogarty, and you had people like Bostrom, and you had, um, you had characters. You had. Um, Slight, uh, slight air on slight. Yeah, exactly. There was, um, Scott uh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, and of course the, uh, the the dressing gown incident. I mean, what more can you want? That was exactly what was missing from Grand Prix at the time. Valentino Rossi brought that back. What about you, Neil? Yeah, similar stuff to what's what's been mentioned already. But I think, um, yeah, he obviously was very clever when he was a younger guy. He knew how to attract attention. He knew how to exude the kind of uh, a sense of fun, which I think was quite natural to him at the time, um, and uh, yeah, that got that got him attention, that got him a lot of love. He sort of, um, you know, I never really saw much of his racing at the time, um, you know, live, just because you had to have like a sort of expensive Sky package to watch uh, the GPs back in the kind of mid to late nineties. Um, but you know, he, he obviously targeted Max Biaggi, knew how to wind him up, and uh, I guess that brought a sort of global attention towards GPs, um, especially in 2000 and 2001, whenever that went to like the, the 500cc World Championship. Um, and, uh, you know, just turned it into this massive thing, which kind of, I don't think 500 GPs had had that sort of attention in, in a long, long time. Um, and yeah, like you're also saying, it, it's kind of racing style was fun. I remember really first watching them in when he arrived in the 500 class in 2000. And there was a lot of races that year when he was a rookie in the class and he was qualifying or he was qualifying way down or he was starting really poorly. I seem to remember racing in the Saxon ring where he basically came out of the first corner, like second last, managed to fight his way through to the front. There was this kind of sense of 
just anything can happen. Anything is possible in the races that he's riding. Um, and you hadn't seen that before, maybe ever in the 500 class. Um, not certainly in, in kind of racing that I'd been watching. So, um, yeah, there was, there was fun off the bike and there was also a sense of just anything is possible on it. Yeah, it's interesting as well, Neil, you say that because back then that was before they changed the Saxon ring and overtaking was even more difficult at that stage and you were able to see him come through like that. But what I wanted to know, Matt, as well, is just like listening to here and listening to David and Neil talking about that sense of fun that you got from Rossi. You're very unique in the perspective you can give from Rossi in those early years, especially his first couple of years on a 500 when he was living in London. You had a, a, a much much better relationship with him than pretty much any journalist would have had, especially any English journalist, any non-Italian. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, when did I write my first book about him? End of 2001, well, during 2001, I suppose, when it was, you know, he was going to win the championship and everything. And, I, and, I, and it, so he was living in London, dodging tax. And, <laughs> and um, so I used to go and see him. Um, he had this, service department in this really kind of kind of really horrible service department um in st james's square which is a kind of very posh part of london um but it was a pretty grim little apartment you know went into into it wasn't flash at all you sort of went into this into this thing and up in the lift and, and there it was and and really badly decorated and you know he'd, he'd be in there and he had to sort of the trophy from his last race would be stuck on the but basically nothing else he obviously didn't really live there you know he was a tax dodge um and one time i remember um lucio being asleep on the sofa snoring on the sofa while while, while i was interviewing rossi because you know they used to go clubbing a lot um you know they're both into that kind of side of things quite a lot i think um so yeah i mean he he, he was yeah just completely different i mean just talking about the, the the difference from doing i mean i used to i knew doing a lot better because i used to work for his pr guy so i used to go and see him every from suzuka 1990 till the end of his career i went to see him every single day in his motorhome and you know and <laughs> so i knew him pretty well and yeah he he was yeah he, he had this he was a machine you know i mean i'd just go and just crush everyone else and just destroy everyone else and he'd have them all beaten before he got on the bike you know and and um but I've sort of found that fascinating in itself. But the interesting thing is that racers and probably the same in other sports, basically everyone watches the guy that's winning or the woman that's winning and says, right, that's what I'm going to do. You know, this is obviously the right way to go about your business. So Duan being very doer and, and, and serious and uh, he made everybody else like that the whole paddock said right well I'm going to, you know, and so all the people trying to beat him were, were like him. They sort of right, okay, I'm going to become really you know, completely tunnel vision. I'm not going to smile. I'm just, you know what I mean? This is just a job of work and blah, blah, blah. And that, so when Rossi turned up, he just completely changed that whole thing. And suddenly, you know, he's sort of waving at the camera and everything. And, and, and suddenly everybody else sort of starts changing as well. And they all start waving at the camera. They're like, oh, you know, that's the way to do it. You know, and, and of course, of course it is. It's much easier to do something if you enjoy it. You know, I mean, Duan was getting his enjoyment, but he got his enjoyment out of basically killing people, basically. You know, he, you know <laughs> Rossi got his enjoyment out of toying with them and then killing them. You know, I mean, the, the, the thing is that all of the waving at the camera and the, you know, what a lovely guy he is. And, and he is, you know, he's a nice guy. But, you know, he's merciless. He's a vicious 
nasty bastard when it comes to racing because that you don't win nine world championships by being a nice bloke um when he first started i mean i interviewed a lot of people kind of behind his career for the book and and pernat you know who ran him for four years at aprilia so at the end of his first year in 125s pernat said we want you to go straight to 250s and um rossi said no, 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 I want to stay in 125s and win the 125s. And they said, no, we want you to go to 250s. And he said, no, well, I'm leaving then. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here, you know. So, I mean, even, so he was, what, 17 then, maybe 18. Even then he was laying down the law and knew his power. And at the end, for his first 250 season, uh, when, when they had Harada and Caparossi in, um, in the 250 team, well, they had, pretty had to run three different teams to try and keep the thing under control. They had, Rossi, Caparossi and Harada in three di- di- different factory teams and, and Pernat decided which crew chief would, would work with which rider and he decided that Rosano Brazzi would ride work with Caparossi and it was all sorted out yet yeah, Caparossi is going to ride with Brazzi da, 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 da. and then at some point in the winter Rossi turns up at Aprilia knocks on Pernat's door goes in and said I want Brazzi I don't want, I can't remember who he was going to have, but he said, I don't want my crew chief, I want Bratzi. And Pernat said, it's not possible. Caparossi Loris is having Bratzi. And he said, well, no, I, I want Bratzi. He says, no, it's, can't do it. I'm sorry. And Rossi said, right, well, I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm leaving Aprilia. So Pernat's like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> okay, so you can have Bratzi. And then he rings up Caparossi. He says, no, Loris, I've been thinking. You know, I'm actually not sure that Bratzi's the best guy for you. I think that you will work better with this other guy. And Loris says, you really? And he said, okay, yeah, maybe you're right. Okay, yeah, let's do that. And and Pernat didn't tell him what had happened for like 20 years. You know, it's probably about, probably about five years ago, a few years ago, he told him, said, by the way, Loris, I'll stitch you up on your cruise. And, 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 and Caparossi's like, you bastard. So, you know, right from the very beginning, Rossi was completely unerring, knew exactly what he wanted and didn't take any shit from anyone. And so this whole kind of lovable, oh, I'm just having fun, kind of, you know, is, is yeah, he's having fun. But man, you know, he is absolutely ruthless in getting what he wants. And, you know, that's if, if you're not like that, you, you're never going to win nine world titles. If anything, Matt, is there a, like a negative side to what Rossi's, or, you know, the impact he's had on the sport? The impact he's had on the sport has been tremendous. I mean, that's, that's not, you know, like... Um, paint that a different color but you know that kind of manipulation or those power games that you know he was quite prominent in i mean i guess the the real peak point of it was around sepang in 2015 where there was a big division you know in the paddock in the sport itself um you know with mark marquez uh you know it didn't rossi wasn't painted in the best light depending on your viewpoint of the incidents of that season but you know was was there a way that you know motor gb became too much vr46 well, I mean, for quite a while, yeah. I mean, he was, you know, arguably more important than the sport, you know, and, and, and you know, try to think of any other sport where that has been the situation. I mean, was that the situation in boxing when Ali was around? Maybe, I don't know. You know, was Ali bigger than boxing? Quite possibly. But Rossi was certainly bigger than MotoGP for a while. But I mean, that started, that kind of, the sort of football fan kind of style thing. He he kind of brought that in. And, and, that, and that, just because of the, the, the intensity of the, idolization of his fans you know that, that that straight away when he came to 500s you know you go to Mugello and and there'll be all the 
Biaggi supporters wearing red and then all the Rossi supporters wearing yellow. And that was like, wow, you know, we're sort of in football. So that was right obvious from that time. And yeah, I mean, I, 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 I find the whole idolization thing pretty weird, you know, by all means support someone. But why would you idolize anyone? You know, especially a sports person. It's just a sports person. You know, they're not actually doing anything useful or important. Um, you know, they might be fun and entertaining all that. But, but yeah, I, I think from that point, but is that his fault? You know, it just, well, it is, yeah, because he's obviously has a very attractive persona and people love him and they adore him and they idolize him. Um, does that then make the fans... Uh, behave in a bad way? Yeah, it probably does. Yeah, I think so. And and, and I think, yeah, the whole 215 thing we don't want to get into here. But yeah, it all got a bit ugly and um, left a really bad taste. You know, we still feel it now, you know, which is why we don't want to go into it on this podcast. <laughs> Maybe we should have a two, 2015 podcast later. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so there was definitely that, that kind of negative side to it. And I think obviously it also happened you know, the, the growth of social media, which amplifies all those things, you know, so, so, uh, you know, I think it's a kind of perfect storm of this kind of us and them, the kind of Rossi versus Marquez or Rossi versus Biaggi. And, and, and then you stick social media on top of that. And, and it's quite, can be get quite ugly. Just going back, um, you know, to the start or the early years of Rossi's career, Matt, um, you know, when I started working in the paddock, Rossi, you would see him in debriefs and he was personable and, and charismatic and, and give you sometimes great material to work with. But uh, aside from that, he was, he cut himself off really from the media. You know, he tried to limit media interactions to a minimum. You wouldn't really hear of Rossi giving out interviews unless it was like a special occasion. Um, but you were in a kind of unique position in that you were working, I think you were ghostwriting his column for a couple of magazines back when he was in 250s perhaps in 98, 99. And you know, just what before he became a global superstar, you know, what was he like when he was a, a kind of teenager? Was he as kind of happy and fun and carefree as he came across when he was racing on track? Yeah, I think he was then. But, you know, obviously, like I just said, there's two sides to him. You know, everybody's, there's n nobody's, everybody has two different sides to them, don't they? So, so, yeah, obviously he's a ruthless racer. But so I used to go and hunt him down either on the Thursday at a race or on, a, on the Sunday evening of a race, depending and and we'd talk about what he'd been up to since the last race and 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 he was great he was he was really into electric um radio controlled cars and you know he used to go clubbing quite a bit so we'd talk about music and and um all that kind of stuff and yeah he was very just a bubbly kid um very sociable you know so so he he, he was he was definitely fun to be with you know you could have a real laugh with him he was just laughing all the time you know everything he did just you know so so he was but then yeah absolutely as you as time went on he he kind of withdrew and you know he had to and and, and i can remember various times and you've probably seen it as well not so much recently because again he sort of keeps himself out of it but 10 20 10 20 years ago um used to see him at some event or whatever and he'd all be like sunny done you know having fun and you know there'd be loads of fans around and then just suddenly his face would change and and, and the a darkness would kind of come across his face and he obviously he's just like i've had enough of this i want to get the fuck out of here um you know you just see his 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 face just switch like that just like right this is enough i'm out of here um 
and his face would go from sunny and everything to really dark and quite scary, you know, which is probably the face that, that you know, that's what probably what happens to his face when he flicks the visor down, you know. Yeah, because it's interesting as well, Matt, because you see that with a lot of successful riders, athletes, whatever it is. If they're given a 15-minute window for an interview, you can be very switched on for 15 minutes. And then the second it goes to 15 minutes and one second, it's like, right, you've had your time, you haven't got your job done, I'm out of here. And it's interesting with Rossi especially, because you mentioned there about you know whenever he was younger, going clubbing, being very personable. But that was also when he didn't have to work as hard. He was the best in the world by a massive margin. And, you know, everything came easy for him. He could roll out of bed five minutes before warm-up and still set the times. Whereas as he got older, and, you know, you're looking at the time when Dave started coming into the paddock in around 2009, 2010. I started coming in 2012, Neil, a couple of years after that. Obviously, Adam was was there from the start of the four-stroke era. But you look at that transition where suddenly he had to work so much harder. So he had to change who he was as well with with every side of himself. Oh, definitely. I mean... Um, yeah, two two factors: a, a that the competition was getting stronger, and, and b racing never never it just, just since the beginning of the dawn of time, it's just got more and more complicated, you know. Um, and uh, I was just talking to Petrucci about this, you know, how you know they spend well, they do two forty five minute sessions a day or whatever, so that's an hour and a half on the bike, probably an hour and ten minutes because they're in and out the pits and so on. But then they're probably looking at a computer screen for another three, four hours, maybe more. You know, it's insane. And and so the, the pressures on these guys are, are huge. They don't get any free time. I mean, I, I, you know, if you said to, you know, if you said, right, to me, you can be a Grand Prix rider now, I'd be like, I don't, I don't think I want to be a MotoGP rider now. I, I just, I think it's such a job of work. I don't think it's a lot of fun anymore. So, and, and, and that comes across. I remember speaking to um, Gary Nixon, about it at Donington once when he he used to sort of came over to go for for Nicky Hayden for, for Nicky's first couple of seasons you know the old superstar dirt tracker and and um he said these guys are going too far too fast to party you know <laughs> and and because when when he was racing you know they they they'd be doing all kinds of stuff you know but the nights before races the nights after races and they were having a wild time you know with you know sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, and, and, and I would much rather have raced then, you know, despite the dangers and whatever, because you would have had a great time. It was just a nonstop party, you know, whereas now it's just, in in those days, everybody went racing to escape work, I think, you know, and, and, and now racing has become a job of work. It's become less and less romantic and more and more scientific. And that's just the way it goes. How you can't stop that happening. It's just a process. Um, you could argue that all of life has gone a bit like that. You know, it's become it's become less romantic and more scientific. Uh, Matt, I mean, Valentino's had an incredibly long career, and he's had so many impacts on the sport. But what what is it that has impressed you? most about it i mean there's the longevity of his career there's the fact that he's won on uh you know a two-stroke 500 uh a 990 and 800 um he's won races on the on the thousand cc uh, format um the fact that he developed you know he kept on changing and developing changing his style and learning and all the rest of it what is it i mean sort of and related to that what do you think his biggest achievement is and what do you think his legacy is uh, well, his uh, yeah, his long his his 
you, 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 you got it right there. I mean, his longevity, obviously, 26 seasons. I mean, no one's done Formula One that long, you know? <laughs> um, uh, or even Grand Prix, you know, Formula Two, Formula One, you know? I mean, I think Kimi Raikkonen's the longest season. To, and, you know, and you cannot, just from a danger point of view, and I think, I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, motorbike, because it is mostly pretty safe, apart from Moto3, um, nowadays, you know, people don't understand how dangerous it is and how most of these guys are living in pain most of the time. You know, mo most of them are injured all the time. You know, e even if they, if it's just a kind of, they've fallen off at 70 miles an hour and they bash themselves about a bit, they haven't broken anything, that's going to hurt for a week or something. You, you know what I mean? So, so, so to live with that pain for that long is remarkable. To, to want to go and risk your life uh, for that long when, when you've got 200 million in the bank or whatever it is just remarkable you know to, to most guys need to most riders need to kind of have have a, a reason to race and and, and 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 that's for for um golden glory basically isn't it you know um he's got enough gold he's got enough glory you know i mean to carry on just basically wanting to keep racing because he loved race just because he gets off on the buzz of riding a motorbike is is remarkable and and yeah his to to ride everything from 125s 250s 500s 800s 990s thousands superbikes you know the eight hour um yeah I, I i don't think there'll ever be a career like it i don't think and on and on top of that his his ability to to cross into the mainstream to make grannies watch racing to make kids watch racing to you know half the grid just grew up now as half the grid now grew up as worshipping Rossi. I mean, it, I mean, it's kind of pretty much impossible to take it all in, really. It's, it's so, such an, if you kind of see the whole circle of what he's achieved, both, you know, results-wise and, and his effect on, on um, people all around the world. It's, you know, there was that, that, that refugee boat in, the, in Australia some years ago that got um, towed into harbour. There was, I think, some re refugees coming in. It was a fishing boat. And it had all been... Painted in Rossi colours, hadn't it? <laughs> yeah, and with a big forty-six on it, and and you just went, "Ma, this is insane." You know, I mean, obviously it's a very sad story these ro refugees or whatever, but you just, you know, how can you even begin to quantify that kind of that kind of reach, that kind of effect that he's had on people? You know, for somebody in Indonesia, got a fisherman in Indonesia to paint his whole boat in Rossi colours. I mean, it's insane. You know. Uh, we'll take another break on the Paddock Pass podcast and when we come back at the end of this, we'll give our final thoughts on Rossi and uh, get a few more little bits of insight from Matt as well. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machine from an advanced aluminum keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, on today's show, like we said, we've got Matt Oxley for uh, Valentino Rossi, all his races. That's out now. And uh, Adam, just for, for you, obviously, when you first came into the paddock in, I think it was 2002, the first the first race of the four-stroke year was your first race with Dorna. Like, what was your impressions whenever whenever you saw Rossi? Actually, Steve, my first Grand Prix was the 2001 Japanese Grand Prix in Suzuka. Um, so it was a pretty good one to pick, really. Um, I can remember it was the first 
Grand Prix I was doing working for Dorna and uh, it's not quite the the media behemoth it is now in terms of television production and whatever else. Um, you know, it was a very small crew, a very small setup in terms of infrastructure in, in, in Suzuka at that time. And I remember there being a real buzz about the place because of what was going on between Biaggi and Rossi. Uh, you know, it really was kind of like the awakening of like Matt, you know, and Dave referred to this duel that, you know, the 500s have been missing. Um, so that was my first race really before I kind of diverged off into covering like MXGP and, and the motocross world championship. But I mean, I, I wanted to ask Matt really, because, you know, the volume of races that you had to work through, I mean, I think Rossi had some ridiculous statistics of like eight seasons or more where he was on the podium more than 10 times. I mean, you know, his numbers of course are, are etched in the, in the history of the sport. Um, you know, what was it like kind of, I mean, the book is published by Avro Publishing. I mean, you, you put that on Twitter as there's a great story in the background and the name of the company that have put this, this thing together. Um, and it has been like a labor of love. I just wondered, you know, what it was like sometimes having to create all those stories around, you know, repetitive podium results, especially like in the Repsol Honda years, um, and whether there was really kind of one race that stood out where you thought, oh, that's easy, I could dash that off in my sleep because it made such a such an impact. And also to extend the the question to the guys on the pod, um, a race that stands out, God. Well, I mean, yeah, Suzuka two thousand one, um, a, a because it was again going back to this sort of thing where he, Rossi had this almost superhuman. Things, just things happened around him to kind of create, help him create the story, you know. So they went to, we went to Suzuka in 2001. Honda had to get three wins, three more, they were on 497 wins at the end of 2000. So they, the first race of 2001 was the Japanese Grand Prix at Honda's home circuit. And um, so they need three races to get to 500 wins. So if they win each, th all three races, they win 500 wins first manufacturer ever to achieve it at their home circuit in the premier class with Valentino Rossi. I mean, you couldn't think, you couldn't, you know, a PR man, woman couldn't dream of a better sort of setup. And Rossi's like, well, there's no way that Honda are going to win the 125 race because Aprilia's are way faster around Suzuka. Um, so, but, but, um, Tokidomi was it? I can't remember. Won the 125 race and then Kato went on, the, on a Honda and then Kato went out and won the 250 race on a Honda. So there it was, straight away, Rossi was like, wow. And they, he did it, won the 500 race at Honda's home circuit, blah, blah, blah. So you just had these kind of, that was one of those moments where, yeah, everything came together to kind of help blow his legend up into even bigger than it was. Other races, oh my God. I, I mean, well, obvious one, when he won uh, Phillip Island with the 10 second penalty, when he just sort of realized he got a 10 second penalty and said, right, well, I'm just going to beat them all by more than 10 seconds and just sort of disappeared, you know, over the, and we're like, oh, okay, so that's how he can ride really when he needs to. So that was, uh, but like I said earlier, the, the important thing when you're doing something like this, like this, is it could end up, and I hope it hasn't, to being incredibly turgid, you know, r race report, race report, race report, race report, but somehow you've got to keep the kind of, knit it all together and keep a flow between from one to the other you know i hope i've achieved that i don't know if i have I, I, like i say i'm bored of the book i haven't i haven't looked at it yet <laughs> so um but uh yeah so that's that's the thing with a book like that is keeping it all sort of um dancing along and and, and having sort of features in between that kind of break it up so interviews with carlo perna interviews with alex bridge briggs interviews with jeremy burgess interviews with lucio Cecanello and so on um 
Yeah, I think the the book in total is 120,000 words, which is a kind of terrifying number of words. But, you know, if, if you write a book, and I've written quite a few now, it, it's you just think, oh, I can't do this, it's ridiculous. But then you, you sit down and you break it up into chapters and you start working out a format and then you sort of take take break it up into little pieces and it, and it, and it becomes a lot more manageable. But, you know, if somebody says to you, right, you've got to work, write 120,000 words, you just go like, you just shoot yourself, you know. And as to the, 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 the history of the, 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 the company, Evero, Evero Publishing, which is E-V-R-O, so uh, Eric Verdon Rowe, who owns the company, uh, his granddad started Avro Aircraft, who who built who built well engineered designed and engineered the Avro Lancaster, obviously a very famous Second World War bomber, and also the Avro Vulcan, which was you know one of the the kind of plane to the Cold War, this ridiculous about the size of a small town, you know, and made made just the most noisiest thing you've ever heard. So that's that's quite a quite a cool backstory behind the publishing company. Yeah, I was going to say, Matt, as well, because one of the things for, for me over the last years, like just to go back to Ad's question about like those memorable races, I really remember whenever we went to Phillip Island in 2014, that was actually one of those standout ones for me, because if you think back to 2013, when Rossi won at Assen, it was just, oh, finally, he's managed to win again. That's great. We, we might be here at the last race that Valentino Rossi wins, and it was special. And then he went on, he won at Misano in 2014, and you thought, oh, yeah, you know, this is potentially that last race victory and then when he won in Phillip Island you thought fucking hell you expect him to win races going forward and uh, like 2015 when I was working with MCN you went out to the tests and it was the first time that I had been in the paddock and I saw Rossi walking through the paddock like the Rossi from the stories that you always you always heard from all the other journalists or what you saw on telly whenever you were a kid and he expected to win races he was going in to win a world championship and you could see a change in him almost overnight and he went into that season, and uh, I remember writing from Sepang 1 that I thought he was going to be a title contender. It almost put him down as a title favourite just because of that air of confidence he had. And it just went to show just how quickly it can turn for a rider like that. He expects to win. He's done it all the way through his career. And after a period of time where he'd really struggled, all it took was those couple of wins. And that's what gave him that longevity, because even those last couple of years that were tough years, 2020 he could have won a couple of races that year you know there was still that spark that could have brought it all back for him and I think you know that that winter of 2014 really reminded me of just how quickly we can write people off but when they've got that talent and they've had all that success you write them off at your peril yeah absolutely I think the the, the sort of time when I kind of thought wow he is getting back to his best was was Mizano 2014 as you said where where he was racing Marquez for the win. That was the race where that was the year where Marquez won the first ten races. You know, um, so you know there was he, he was on his way to his second world title. So there was no no doubt that he was the best guy, and um, they were racing for the win there. And um, Marquez crashed trying to stay with Rossi, and you just thought, okay, you know that 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 basically says that um, yeah, the best riders in, rider in the world is falling off trying to beat him. That means that he he can be world champion again, definitely. Yeah, that whole 2015 season, I mean, the end really ruined it because there were some fantastic races in that. And you saw that, uh, I mean, the Phillip Island, what was it, 2003, that was a measure of just how much faster Valentino Rossi was than everyone else, how much, you know, how fast he really was. Then um, Laguna 2008, when he beat Casey, was like, this is 
this was him showing that he found a way to beat a rider who was on be- uh, on a faster bike who should have beaten him, uh, but he found a way to do it um, together with Jerry Burgess, obviously. Um, and then 2015, there were those races where he found ways of actually beating people. Where he found, I mean, you know, Argentina, where he um, uh, where he beat uh, where he beat Marquez and Assen. You know, Aston 2015. The end of that race was absolutely fantastic because Mark had been setting that pass up all weekend, diving in sort of really tight to the uh, to the final chicane, and it was obviously he was going to try something there. And Rossi knew that was going to happen, took account of it, and took advantage of it, and uh, and won. And it was just um, uh, the, Mark Marquez's reaction in the press conference afterwards told you just how badly he felt he'd been beaten by Valentino at that point. So, um, I mean, that those were those mo- most memorable. And it's a shame that, um, as I like to say, Andrea Iannone ruined his race at, uh, for him at uh, Phillip Island in 2015. Yeah, obviously enough, if you want to listen back to anything about that 2015 season, we actually did a couple of lockdown episodes on it last year. So episode 145 and uh, 146 were about that 2015 season. Neil, what about you? Yeah, two years ago, Steve, we're in 2022 now, of course. Um, But yes, I I would say, I mean, it's an obvious one, but just, you know, welcome 2004, um, just for the sort of that achievement. Um, You've gone through the whole preseason. It was kind of wonderful how it had shifted and how Rossi kind of played it as well, because he was at the end of 2003 saying, oh, you know, I think we need to maybe give myself and Yamaha half a season to sort this bike out. And maybe if we can be winning by the end of 04, you know, basically the the aim is 05, the championship. And then as the tests went on at the start of 04 preseason, you started hearing whispers, like, oh, yeah, he's actually really fast. But then you thought, okay, well, can he be consistent? And I think Rossi in his book actually said they had a, a race simulation at a test in Phillip Island. And I think they were maybe even faster than he was the previous year on the Honda. And he was thinking... Okay, but he made a point of not telling anyone or not releasing the sort of the the, the time he did during that race simulation, and then uh, I think there was a preseason test at Jerez, and again you're just thinking, can he actually can he actually do this? And um, yeah, it was uh, you know it was kind of one of those. It wasn't a, a a real brawl that fight with Biaggi that he had. It was more tense. He was leading. Biaggi was just trying to get by in any way, and I can't remember a race where the lead rider has looked so kind of ungainly and uncomfortable on a bike. It was clear that that bike at that time was not ready to win. And those guys were like, what, 10 seconds ahead of Gibernau in third? They were just in a class of their own. And Rossi still found a way to, to beat Biaggi. You know, it was uh, it was just a, a kind of Herculean achievement. And I still think the only time that a rider has won consecutive races on different makes of bike in the, the Premier class. So, you know, that achievement stands alone um, as a, a totally unique feat. Writing the book, I kind of interviewed a few people. Well, Burgess and and Briggs, for example, who were obviously you know part of his of fixing the Yamaha, and you you won't you won't believe how easily they did it. <laughs> um, I'm not going to tell you here. You've got to people have to buy the book. But I mean, you know, chapter and verse, what they did to the bike and and how obvious the problems were. You know that they, that Burgess and, and Briggs, they were just couldn't. You know the, the the problems that the bike had were so obvious, and they fixed them in a day or two. Uh, I mean, just with settings and ride heights and, and 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 suspension settings and so on. I mean, literally, just like really, <laughs> you got the bike set up like this. 
what do you, why don't we just do this? Oh, oh, it works now. Awesome. And, you know, Yamaha was being, uh, uh, I'll tell you one of the things that, that, that Rossi said, um, whenever I shut the throttle, the, the bike's still pushing me into the corner. So this is like the first step, probably after his first couple, couple of runs, the bike's still pu- pushing me into the corner. So they, they looked on the data and yep, sure enough, he, he shut the throttle on the brake, but the throttle's still, oh, because obviously it's a ride-by-wire throttle. So the, the throttle's still picking up as he's going into, into the corner. And they're like, why is that doing that? And they're like, oh, well, we, for some reason, they had the, the front brake pressure was connected to the, you know, it was actually triggering, it was turning the throttle on. And the guy hit the front brake. And I'm like, what? And they're like, oh, well, we'll just disconnect that, that parameter. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's problem solved. And it's like, <laughs> hang on, you've, be, you've been racing like this? And so is this why Barros crashed 98 times last year? You know, when Barros was the lead rider, because every time he hit the brakes and, and you know, the, the fucking revs picked up and he lost the front and crashed. But none of the other riders have been able to work that one out. You know, I mean, it's just, and there were a few other things like that, which are just mind-boggling, you know, the, how, how simple they were. But Yamaha hadn't just, hadn't been able to fix them until he came along. Yeah, because I thought that was one of the most interesting things, actually, Matt, that I read just reading through the book. And it was new information for me and i think that's one of the good things whenever you get a book like this there are some things that you know people didn't know about from 15 years ago 20 years ago and you you do tend to have it it's a good encyclopedia to be able to look back on to be able to to look through it and obviously enough um it's been a a labor of labor of love for you at times and then uh, it's been a chore at other times but whereabouts can everyone get the book um the publishers are evero publishing i think the best thing to do so i think um Best thing is just to Google Valentino all his all his races, um, Evro Publishing, which is E V R O, and that will just take you to the website rather than give people a web web address. I think just Google the book name Valentino Rossi all his races, Evro, Evro Publishing E V R O, and um, that will take you to the website. I, I think uh, so. You can get it from Evro now, or you can wait until the end of this month or early February to get it from Amazon. We can put out the link uh, also, we know, when we spread the show on social media. So if you're getting your Paddock Pass podcast from, you know, Twitter or wherever, then we'll, we'll try and put the link as well to, to the book. Cool. Thanks. We're obviously coming to the end of the show, man. But just one quick question to, to ask towards the end. You obviously mentioned some of the, the names from Rossi's career that you interviewed uh, to research the book. And I just want to know who was the, who was the most enlightening, who was the, the funnest, and, and why was it Carlo Pernet? <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah Car- carlo um yeah I, I i mean he's a bad man but i love him you know um uh he's fantastic i mean i just yeah he's uh, there's no one else like it like him in the paddock he, he was fantastic to, to to talk to but also alex briggs briggs you know who's um obviously been there since the beginning you know, as Steve just said, you know, the, the the thing about when you're writing a book is you're talking about 10, 15 years ago and, and you find out all the secrets. You know, there's no way in 2003 or 2004, or 2005 or, or whatever around that period that anyone would have revealed what they'd done to fix the Yamaha. But now it's sort of ancient history, isn't it? So, yeah, they're quite happy to come up with these secrets. That, that So so that's the exciting thing. So I, I enjoyed Cecchinello, Pernat, Briggs um burgess I, they're, they're all i love i just love speaking to anybody who, who knows their stuff about motorbike racing basically what are you doing with us <laughs> <laughs> what am i doing with myself 
Um, obviously, I mean, you're writing this book because it's the end of Valentino's career, and Valentino's had. I mean, he's dominated the sport. He, like you said, he's he was bigger than the sport at one point. Um, uh, we saw that there were a couple of times when it looked like Valentino Rossi was about to retire. The, the, the Dawn are actually realised they had to do something about this uh, about the sport, and in the end, the whole switch to you know via CRTs and single and spec ECUs and all the rest of it, um, they've created this incredibly exciting championship now. But how do you see the future of the sport without Valentino Rossi? Because you know the, the proof. 2022 the, the you know the, the the proof of the pudding is in the eating uh, and it's the first season genuinely without Valentino Rossi there it, it's going to be really interesting I mean I mean I think it's it's lucky for Dorna um for anybody wanting to make money out of the sport so that includes us I suppose um that that he he um that Rossi had a kind of a quite a long downfall if he'd retired you know if he at the end of 2015 for example if he said bugger this I'm, I've been you know he obviously thought he'd been shafted and thought, right, I'm, I'm, I'm off. I think then there would have been a dramatic, you know, down, um, collapse in, in, in viewing figures. Um, but because he's kind of the last few years, he's been on a kind of downward trend. I think a lot of people have kind of gone, you sort of slowly switched fans, switched their allegiance, found somebody new to cheer on. Um, so, you know, obviously I hope, I hope, it doesn't have too too much of an effect, but we're just not going to know until it actually happens. I mean, will will we lose ten percent viewing figures? Will we lose fifteen, twenty? Will will we lose five? I, I don't know, but it, it'll certainly be different. I'm actually looking forward to it because I'm you know I loved having him around. Twenty six years was great, but it was time to go, you know. And I'm kind of I'm quite looking forward to the the post Rossi era just to see what it's like, you know, and yeah. I mean, I mean, my, my number one hope of all is that Mark Marquez is going to be fully fit because I, I, w w before he arrived in 13, I was getting quite bored of, of, of MotoGP the, during the 800 years. It'd been a nightmare. The r racing was just, just follow your leader because of the way the bikes were. And I was like, you know, I've nearly had enough of this. And then Marquez came along and tucking the front in every corner. And, and it's like, whoa, you know, this is so exciting. I just don't know what's going to happen next. Um, so I really, really, really hope Marquez is going to come back. That's my number one hope for the season. And you know, I mean, from the point of view, how many fans are watching it and so on, really, that doesn't bother me. You know, I'm, I'm there because I want to be there and I like watching it. I like talking to people. I like writing about it. I don't really care how many other people do up to a point, as long as there's enough people to sort of help me pay my mortgage, you know. Um, uh, you know, I was there during the boring years of, of, of Mick Doohan, but yeah. I kind of, in, in, I enjoyed that from, from a different, there was still lots going on. Um, and and Doohan was fascinating in his own way. So, uh, you know, if, if people want to leave I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. You know, I'll, I'll carry on enjoying it. And, and and I think also there is that sort of thing, you're talking about negatives of Rossi. I would say that a lot of people that came in and became huge fans of Rossi, but not really knowing anything about motorbike racing. And, you know, I'd much rather have fans that are really into the racing and kind of want to understand more about it and why is this like that and why is that like that, rather than just people who are just to scream in support of one rider you know so so if if all those you know people that supported him and nothing else go, depart it doesn't really doesn't bother me at all but it, it'll be interesting it'll be interesting to see what it's like but i'm i'm actually really looking forward to it 
obviously for us on the Paddock Pass podcast, one of the big metrics we have for being able to track just how interested fans are in Rossi and only Rossi will be our Patreon subscribers. So uh, <laughs> check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast where for $10 a month you can become a Paddock Insider and get lots of additional content through the winter tests and then also through the course of the season. That's going to be something we're going to be keeping an eye on all the way through the year just to make sure that uh, everyone's able to get good value for that. But uh, obviously enough, this brings us to the end of today's show Matt like you said the book is Valentino Rossi all his races a Google search will take you to Avera Publishing and uh, you can check that out for I think it's £50 for the book and uh, it's well worth it for for any MotoGP fan never mind the Valentino Rossi fan so Matt a big thank you for joining us on the show today oh thank you it's been great fun good to talk to you all and um, online and I hope to see you all at Sepang or in Qatar um, you can all buy me. A, that's my price for 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 this. Is you can all buy me a beer in Qatar. So that that's about two grand, isn't it? Awesome. <laughs> I I won't be in Qatar, Matt. So uh, I'll, I'll get you whenever it's a nice cheap beer somewhere else. But uh, obviously enough, the Patreon money will go towards the uh, Matt Oxley Beer Fund for Qatar. So that'll probably bankrupt the show. So this could well be the last couple of months on the Paddock Pass podcast. But it's been a, it's been a good run for us. You know, we're well over 200 episodes and uh, we've a lot planned for the rest of 2022. So obviously we've had a couple of weeks off just for the new year. And uh, David's obviously been a full of New Year cheer. But uh, for, for Neil, it was probably a little bit too much New Year beer. And uh, Adam... It's uh, hopefully going to be a little bit quieter for you now and uh, you can get away from the in-laws. But uh, big thank yous to all of you for joining us on the show as usual. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street and Fly Racing. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. I did manage to get the um, uh, the uh, Conan the Barbarian quote in there. The uh, crush your enemies, see them driven before you and hear the lamentations of their women.